And turn your Bibles to John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Uh, as we continue uh, a series that we started last week, studying and looking at the person work of the Holy Spirits. Last week we gave you an overview, an introduction to his work. A lot, of, a lot of scaffolding we put in place last week from John chapter 14. This week uh, we are going to be looking at the miracle of new birth. The Spirit's connection to our new birth in Christ Jesus. And so we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. I hope you have a Bible and you read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen for you as well. Hear God's words. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven and the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This sentence, the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Let me ask you this question at the beginning this morning. What is the, what is the biggest or most radical transition or transformation one goes through in life? There's a couple, there's key spots in your life in which adding something to your repertoire, your skill, or some, you know, place in your life in which there was a radical change brought about transformation in you. It could have been when you went from crawling to walking. That's a pretty big deal. When you start cruising around the living room and people have to chase you around all over the place. Perhaps it was potty training. That's good, right? That's a pretty big uh, transformation is when you are potty trained. We've been going through that in our household, and I'm, I'm telling you what, I'm excited for this transformation <laughs> Going to school for the first time, that's a pretty big transformation as you head out or perhaps going off to college, leaving home, that's a pretty big transformation. What about puberty? Yeah, that's, that's, that's got to be up there, right? When your voice is changing, and for, I, don't, well, I don't know what it is, but like my voice, it just, before it went deep, it went up and got squeakier. Before it went lower, it was awful. There was a lot of transition there. It was bad. What about getting married? Getting married is a pretty big transition, for those of you who've gotten married or having kids, but get, maybe getting old. <laughs> you're looking at your body and you're going, you know what? Nothing works anymore. This is not a good transition. It's a transition. 
This is a transformation, but it's a, it's a no bueno transformation. Well, I think, it's, it, I think there's one transition that has to be clearly the biggest, though. And that transition is your birth. Birth. The most significant day of your life, you oddly enough have no recollection of. And if you claim to, then we have a counselor at this church who would like to meet with you. Birth, it's a sacred and astounding thing that, where you move from the warmth of your mother's womb and into, in a water environment and total darkness into a world that is cold and immediately they shine enormous lights on you and people are spanking you and you don't understand why and someone's cutting something off of your belly button. It's a very confusing place. What a transition is birth. When you see a child being born, you realize just how, why ancient cultures actually may have worshipped and viewed women as divine, because you're just going, this is astounding that this would happen, this kind of transformation, that that comes from that. The most important day of your life is your birth, well, except for one other day, and that is the day in which you are born again. Born again. In fact, that is the greatest transition that could ever happen in the life of a person. Born again, you know the term? Born again. It's, it's interesting. We, we need to look at born again because it has been co-opted. Many, many people in our world, if you're kind of my age or older, you actually probably might actually think of born again as a certain type of Christian. In the last couple of years in which the, in the rise of Trumpism and looking at all these people, Christians who voted for Trump, one of the great questions that people have asked is this, and looking at the stats of like something like 70 or 80% of evangelicals voting for him, and people are going, why? And the, within that has come the question is, what is an evangelical? And I would say historically, perhaps historically, one of the best understandings of what is an evangelical in America is someone who identifies themselves as a born-again Christian. This may be an awkward thing for someone in our church, but many of you uh, may know this, but Dan Williams here has actually written a book on the, uh, the making of the political right or the religious right in America, called, a book called God's Own Party. I looked and searched on the Kindle version of that book this week, and you can essentially, even as, I'm not sure if Dan would claim this, you can ask him this, but 54 times in his book, he uses the word born again in connection to the National Association of Evangelicals and various presidents all through the second half of the 20th century who claimed, of course, to be born again. I mean, Georgia's, perhaps Georgia's, one of their most, our most famous residents was Jimmy Carter, and he was famously known for being a born-again Christian. And yet, what does it mean to be a born-again person? John 3, John, Jesus talks to a man named Nicodemus, and he says to him, you must be born again. You must be born again. Well, when it comes to being born again, as we're going to see in this passage, we see that this process of being born again, it says it happens by the water and spirit there in verse 5 and 6. That this is morning we're going to look at the connection as we're looking at this series of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit's connection to your new birth or to your status as being born again, or the 50-cent theological word for being born again is our regeneration. 
the process of going from death to life. And as I said last week, what I want to drive home in this series and what I want to drive home again this morning is this, that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is an unbelievable, unspeakable, unfathomable gift to us. And to show you the enormous importance and wondrous nature of the new birth you have by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so three things I want us to see this morning about the new birth by the Holy Spirit. The new birth by the Holy Spirit. The first is this. New birth by the Spirit is critical. It is an absolute must. Understand what is going on here. Poor Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up. He says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I I know you're a great teacher. And Jesus simply looks at him and says, hey, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused by this. And he goes, what? Can I crawl back up into my mother's womb? Nicodemus is one of those very literal types, apparently. And so Jesus looks at him again and says, you must be born again by the water and by the spirit if you want to be in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? Well, it means simply this. It means that you have been regenerated. That you, what has, was dead in you has now become alive again. To be spiritually alive means that God has opened your mind and your heart to understand and to love what you previously did not understand or love. Here's just a key basic definition of being born again. Being born of God is a, the definitive event where the Holy Spirit of God transforms us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And new birth is not an extra or a peripheral experience to, what it, to the Christian life. To hear the term a born-again Christian is a redundancy. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. It is what it is the very definition of being a Christian. is someone who has gone from death to life. And if you want to belong to the family of God, if you want to claim to be a Christian, if you, or if you want to be amongst the categories of God's family, then you must be born again. Now, here's, it leads to this question, though. Why must we be born again? Why do we have to be born again spiritually? See, we must be born again spiritually because... In our natural state, we come into this world and we live in this world and as spiritually dead. The need for a new birth implies that there was something wrong with our first birth. According to the Bible, we were born into a, a state of spiritual death because of the sin of the human race. That our father Adam sinned and that thrust, thrusted all of humanity ever since, all of his progeny into sinfulness as well. And the scripture is not sparing in its description of the state of the human heart, is it? Simply go look at Romans 1 and 2 and look at the descriptions of the human heart naturally. It says it's like an open grave. There's nothing good. Nothing, everything about the thoughts of human heart is evil. Jeremiah 17 9 says it in the Old Testament as well that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's how we come into this world. You see, we, we are not just a little bit broken. We are not just a little bit depraved. We are not just mostly broken. We are entirely broken. We are entirely sinful. Louis Giglio, the pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, says this. He says, it is impossible to overestimate the corruption sin caused in our hearts. Sin didn't knock us down to God's JV team or put us on probation, or put us on our slower track to get to our mansion in heaven. No, sin wiped us out. 
we are completely depraved. We were made, you see, so that our hearts, though, we were made so that our hearts would be turned towards God. But then in the fall, we rejected God so that now what is wrong with us is not just simply our behaviors are wrong, but down to our very hearts, our very desires are wrong. It means that we don't just do wrong, we love wrong. It's like our hearts are sick and we quit loving what we were supposed to love and started loving all the things that we shouldn't love. Paul says in Romans that we have disordered desires. Disordered desires. So we need to be born again. And how does that happen? How does, that, how does it happen that we are born again? And here is the collision of some very distressing news for some of you, but also some really, really, really good news. How are you born again? Do you do anything to be born again? Let me put it quite plainly. You do nothing to be born again. You don't do anything. In fact, you cannot do nothing. All the words here in, this, in these passages, in verse 3 and in verse 5, when Jesus says to, to Nicodemus, he uses the word cannot. It's the Greek word dunamai. It means that you are unable to see the kingdom of God. You are unable to bear yourself. Religion, this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says this, do this, do this, and then you'll get God's. But Christianity says no. God gets you 100% of the time. Let me just give you a basic illustration from biology and see if I can bring this to a little more clarity. I'm going to lay down some earth-shattering biological truth here for just a second. So hold on to your pants, people. Get this. You actually had nothing to do with being conceived. That the day in which you were conceived in your mother's womb was not by your choice. You were not up in some fairy tale land going, I would like them to be my mom and dad's. I'm going to go insert myself there. No, it was completely against your choice. You did nothing. And so is the truth spiritually. Why? That's why Jesus is using this picture from earthliness of being birthed. All the descriptions throughout the Old and the New Testament talk about this, that God is always the first mover. We love, why? Because he first loved us. What's the objection to this? But, but pastor, I chose Jesus. And this is such a North American thing that we love doing this. Uh, I, we love to preserve our autonomy. We love to give ourselves lots of credit. We love to cling to whatever credit we can possibly cling to. We say, we chose Jesus. I decided, and that's how I was born again. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, and because of that, he regenerated me. He gave me new life. And our longing for freedom and for free will that has been a part of the culture of our country from the very beginning, right? I mean, what's the state motto of Virginia, right? Death to tyrants. And it has a a person, a woman, Virginia, with her foot on the king of England say, no one will tell me what to do. And we've taken that very idea and we said, no one will refringe upon me. And we've taken that idea and we've put it into our religion as well. But let me ask you this. Saul on the road to Damascus, he was going there because he had such a great love for God. He was seeking God. He was pursuing the Lord. He was going to Damascus to, pers- to oppose God, to-, to find those who served God. He was against Jesus in every possible way. And yet Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. And he- what-, 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 what does Jesus do on the road to Damascus? Does he show up to-, to Paul and say, hey, does he ask Paul's permission to change Paul's life? Does he say, hey, Paul, can I enter your life? 
Will you, I'm standing here and knocking, Paul. Would you please just put your faith and trust in me and then I'll change your life. Then you can see. Is that what happens? No. God, Jesus shows up and he knocks Paul off a horse and he shines a light into his eyes and brings new birth into Paul's life. Saul's free will is violated by God's great power. That's what happens here. The love of God captures us. He invades our hearts like a tornado, a tornado of love that we cannot run away from. See, the answer the Bible says this, that we can't do anything because we are spiritually dead. Now, here's another quick biological piece of information. Let me ask you this. I think you guys can get this one. How much, how many things can, um, how much things can dead people do? Can, can dead people do anything? Dead people can do nothing, Nothing means nothing. It is not like the Princess Bride and Miracle Max. It is not that somebody is the difference between dead and mostly dead. The issue that the Bible says when we are born in this world is not that we are mostly dead and we have a little shrapnel of life in us in which we can put our faith and trust in Jesus. No, it says we are absolutely and completely dead. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people don't respond to gospel calls. Something has to be made alive in us before we can respond And that's actually what our text says. In John chapter 3, verse 6, it says this. All of our attempts, if we were to even try to make a change in our life, would be useless because it says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Cats give birth to what? Cats. Dogs give birth to dogs. And sinners give birth to more sin in our lives. We can't save our corrupted flesh through any efforts of our own because anything we do to fix ourselves will come from the very corrupted reservoir that is already causing problems for us in the first place. The Bible says that none of us would seek God, none would pursue God or love God unless God of his own will chose us first. Because our wills are broken. We were designed to be curved in love and affection for God. But in the fall, our wills, our desires were broken. So that we will never choose God. That's the reality. God has to set us free from our free will. Free will means that you will always choose the things that you most desire. Therefore, God has to give you a new heart that desires something new. If you sit a lion down and put a bowl of kale in front of him or a bunch of steaks in front of him, you know what what will happen? A thousand out of a thousand times, the lion will always choose the steak. Why? Because it's according to the will of his nature. And the nature of sinners is this. If you put a loving, awesome God before them, or if you put our own selfish desires before us, a thousand after a thousand times, we will, of our own free will and choice, of our sinful hearts, always choose our kingdom and our selfishness. And actually, it doesn't just that we choose our kingdom, but we hate God's kingdom. And therefore, and this is a critical theological thing to understand, Regeneration, new birth, being born again precedes our faith. It is God's work who makes us new, gives us a new heart and a new mind first so that we can then put our faith in God. It is, all, it is the loving initiative of God alone that comes and makes us alive. Now, this is scary for us, right? Because I asked this question, you know what the implication of this is? It means that we are utterly and completely dependent on something outside of our control to bring this transformation to bear in our lives. It means you are 
you are utterly at the mercy of God's grace. How does, how does Jesus describe the Spirit's work in verse 6? The Spirit is like a wind. You cannot control the wind. It goes where it desires. We, we are out of control. And it is a miracle if you see that. And if you can see that you're out of control, perhaps that might be the first sign that you can know that the new birth has happened in you. So this sets us up well for the second thing I want us to look at is that's this. Well, if we can't do anything, Jesus, if God has to put new life in us, this points to the second thing about the new birth. The new birth by the Spirit is radical. It's radical. What happens in the new birth is not getting new religion. It's not getting a few tweaks to your life, but it's getting new life entirely. There's this guy, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. Let me first just kind of describe a little about who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a really good guy. He is a Pharisee, and often in our New Testament, we see Pharisees, and we always think, ooh, we hear, kind of hear rattle-shaking Pharisees. Ooh, they're bad. But Nicodemus is one of the good ones. He actually is coming to Jesus with a teachable heart. Nicodemus is highly respected. He's a pillar in the community. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. This guy is wealthy, well-learned, he, and he comes to Jesus with a teachable spirit. And he actually even believes good things about Jesus. He says, Jesus, we know, I know that you're a teacher. And so here's a man who has his life together. He has biblical knowledge. He has religious understanding. He has intellectual depth. He has power. He is civic-minded. He has a good view of Jesus for the most part. And yet, how does Jesus respond to Nicodemus' entreaties to teach him? With the most bizarre non-sequitur in all the Bible, right? Nicodemus says, hey, teach me. And Jesus goes, you have to be born again. And we all go, What? I'm not sure that's what Nicodemus was looking for. Now, why would, why would Jesus be so abrupt? And why does he seem to, to, to say something out of left fields? Because Jesus sees where Nicodemus is going. Nicodemus doesn't see Jesus. He sees him fairly well, but he doesn't see him fully properly. See, Nicodemus is looking at Jesus as primarily as a teacher. And many of you think of that way of Jesus as well. That what it means to be a Christian and what it means is to get anything out of Jesus is simply to follow his teachings. And if you just follow his teachings, then your life will go well with you. But Jesus wants to stop Nicodemus right there. And he wants to look at Nicodemus and say this, Nicodemus, I have not come to reform you. I'm not just come to teach you a few things that you don't have knowledge about and shine some new light on you and drop some knowledge on you. No, I have come utterly to transform every part of your being. Now that's different. That's radically different. Imagine this. Imagine if you had a peach orchard and you decided that you wanted to start selling apples. And you, you decided that you need to start selling apples. What would you have to transform about your orchard in order to begin selling apples? Could you simply take peaches from the trees and hope that you're going to begin selling those peaches as apples? No, that would be ridiculous. In order to begin selling apples, you would actually have to cut out all the peaches and go down to the very root and actually replant entirely new and different trees. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he needs. New life. The Greek word radical. Radical comes from the Latin word radix. It means base. It means core. It means principle. It means at the very root of our lives, we need to be transformed. And Jesus goes on to provide a more thorough understanding of how deep this transformation must go. Look at verse 5. He says, you must be born again in verse 3. And then he goes on to say this in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Now here Jesus is most likely quoting from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, which was written some 600 years before Jesus' life. And there it says this in those verses. God says to Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So he sprinkles clean water. It's the washing. And then it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see what the new birth is? It is two things. It is a cleansing from all sin so that our hearts, which are nothing but sin depositories, but our hearts are cleansed of sin. And not just that, it is the creation of a new heart by the Spirit within us. If you want more confirmation for this, simply look at Titus chapter 3 where Paul talks about this, if you like the language Paul uses. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, Paul says this, and he goes through the very kind of paradigm that we're going through this morning. He says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred of others by hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, how? By the washing, cleanliness, of regeneration and renewal, newness of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Regeneration is a kind of washing, and it's a whole new you. It's not just you with a little bath. It's a whole new you. That's what it means to be born again. That you're a new person from the very core. And what happens in the new birth is therefore not getting a new religion and not simply having a religious experience. It is getting entirely new life. Nicodemus had religion unto his eyeballs. What he needed was new life and he needed Jesus. God doesn't want you just to simply just change your behavior. He wants to change your desires, your loves, everything else, everything about your life. And in this, we see the wonder of the new birth, the wonder of it. One of the greatest minds in the history of the world, not just in Christianity, but in philosophy as well, is a 13th century philosopher named St. Thomas Aquinas. And he said these words. He said, the recreation or the new birth of one human heart is a greater miracle than the original creation of the universe that came out of nothing. Your new birth is a miracle. You are walking miracles if you love Jesus. And why is it a miracle? Why is it greater than the first creation? It's a greater miracle because in the original creation, God was working just with nothing. And that's better than working with something that is hating God. And the recreation, God takes something that hated him and had run from them and was utterly destroyed. And God says, I'm going to re- recreate it entirely into something beautiful. And you are a miracle of God's grace. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The radical nature of our new birth. And so the new birth is radical. It's necessary. It's critical. It's the miraculous transformation of a heart of stone. A heart that could not ever see Jesus. That would never put its faith and trust in Jesus. If left on our own, we would never love him. And indeed we hated him. But in this transformation, this radical heart begins to see differently. And this is the third thing I want you to see this morning. That the new birth by the Spirit is optical. It's optical. It changes the way you see. 
Now, we've just said that the new birth is something that you can bring about. But on the other hand, Jesus is known, and the Bible is also known for this command to believe. Believe. He's going to mention it four or five times in in John uh, 3 itself. Believe the testimony. When I am lifted up, believe in me. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, unless you are converted, unless you turn and trust in me, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must believe. I want you to see that there are two sides to this coin or two depths to believing. Underneath, inside, there is something that you cannot do, that God must do. He brings about the new birth. But when that new birth happens, it comes with a new heart. And get this, it's like coming with a new computer that is wired with the software of faith. That your old heart would never see, never trust, never love Jesus. But the new heart, its greatest longing and its greatest desire is to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to trust in Jesus. It's a radical transformation so that you see Jesus as one who is something to be despised that now is something that you love. When the Spirit of the God rebirths us, we see entirely differently And Jesus gives us this illustration. It's an odd one. It's an odd illustration that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. See if you can follow it here at the end. Jesus says, truly, truly, that means amen, amen. It means listen up, buddy. This is true. Listen up. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, you don't have the eyes to see yet. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And here's where it gets really odd. Verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, the one who lifts up talks about a serpent. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is referring to a story from Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament. Now, this is one of those stories that if your kids are going through a Bible devotional book, a story book, a children's Bible book, or they're in Sunday school, this is usually one of those stories that people choose to kind of just skip over. We don't put it in the children's Bible books because it's about snakes and that creeps kids out. It totally creeps me out. By the way, did you see the pictures this week of the, uh, the, the, the snake in uh, Australia that uh, ate alive an alligator? It was frightening. It was totally freaky. Don't, don't, okay, moving on. It has like warnings. So like if you want to see this, you're going to be totally weirded out. But snakes, no one likes to really hear stories about snakes. It creeps us out. They're gross. And this story is an odd one. The children of Israel had just been freed from bondage in Egypt, and they were being brought to the promised land. But they had been wandering around for many years in the wilderness on the way there. And they had been slaves, and yet now they had starting to rebel against God. They started to say things like, we wish we could go back to Egypt where we had it really good forgetting that God had delivered them from their slavery. And so this is a picture of our sin, that we want to go back to our old idols. We want to go back to those things that destroy us, that enslave us. And so God sends fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21 into the camp, vipers of death that, eat, that bite thousands of people. And they begin to wail out and cry out in God, and they're dying in pain. And so as they're there lying and dying in pain, God gives us this picture that this is what sin is. You are bitten. Sin is a poison in your life that will destroy you from the inside out. 
And so as they're lying there crying out, God tells Moses to go build a brass serpent and put it up on a pole. You're seeing like, well, we don't actually include this in the children's storybook Bibles, right? They put a, you're supposed to put a serpent, a brass serpent up on a pole, and everybody who would look at the serpent would be healed of their disease. And then Jesus looks at Nicodemus, so he reminds him this, of this story. And then Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, and just like that, so you're to look at the Son of Man up on a cross and believe in him. In the same way, you must look at me on the cross. Why would Jesus say that our rebirth is like the story of Numbers chapter 21? Real three, three real quick connections between, the, between these two stories. First, because when you are reborn by the Spirit, you begin to see your desperate need for the first time. You begin to see yourself as you really are. And it's no good, is it? But the idea of someone who has been bitten by a poisonous viper in a world where they had no antidotes, to be bit by the serpent, you knew that you were what? Dying. It didn't matter. You didn't need someone to simply airbrush your face or cut your hair. You needed something, something far more transformational because you were dying of the poison of your sin. We needed someone not to simply reform us a little bit, but to save us. So that's the connection. And our rebirth, we begin to see how badly we need someone to die for us, to save us. Second, Jesus also is trying to show us that in the new birth, believing you see the very thing that brings about your death that would have brought about your death, actually will bring about your life. What do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. We deserve the curse of God. Cursed, it says in Isaiah, is anybody who goes up on a, is killed or put to death on a tree. And we are the ones who deserve to be put on the cross. And yet on the cross, when we look up and see Jesus on the cross, what do we see? We see our punishments. The very thing that should have been our death that would represented our curse upon us, Jesus was taking it for us. That just as the Israelites looked upon the serpent, the very thing up on this, this pole that was the means of their death, and it brought them life, so it is that we look to the cross that which should have been the means of our eternal death, and we look to it, and it brings us life. You see, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He literally takes your punishment. He takes your poison, the poison of your sin upon himself, and is stricken for us. He took the curse. And lastly, in this, connecting these two stories, Jesus is showing us that in the new birth, believing, in new birth believing, the only thing you have to do to be healed is to What? Look, look. Suppose Moses had said, or God had said to the people of Israel, we're going to put this serpent up on this pole, and anybody who can crawl on their hands and knees or get up and walk and touch the pole or kiss the pole, then you'll be healed. Is that what it says? No. It's the picture of people who are writhing on the ground, who can do nothing, who cannot move, and yet all it is it may must do to be healed is simply to do this. Did you see that? To move their eyes and to look. A.W. Tozer in his book, Pursuit of God, describes faith this way. He says, it is the gaze of the heart to the Lord. And he goes out, he takes that very picture from Numbers chapter 21. 
that what faith is, and this is so, it shows us how small our faith really is. God doesn't say, hey, your faith is just, oh, you're sick and you're throwing up and you've got a snake bite and you pull yourself up and you kind of stomp towards the pole. No, faith, your faith is so little and so weak that it's this. That's all it is. And yet, oh, that's, if you have faith, you connect it to God and his redemptive work, what do you get? You get transformation. You get salvation for all of eternity. You get justification and adoption and sanctification. You get life in Jesus and with him. That's what it means to believe. To do what? To look up at the serpent. But Jesus says, the serpent is me. So what is he saying? Belief is simply looking at Jesus. Looking at Jesus for the first time, seeing the beauty of Jesus on the cross, of one who would die for you. This puts this, the next verse in John chapter 3 in a whole new light, doesn't it? We stopped at John 3.15, and it's an odd thing, Numbers. The next verse is, oddly enough, John 3.16. You may have heard of it. In case you're unaware of what John 3.16 says, it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you believed? It's that simple. It's simply looking at Jesus. Gazing upon him with a delight, heart of delight, a heart of love and trust. Do you have eternal life in Christ Jesus? If you do, it's because the new birth of the Spirit has happened in your life. Do you see the beautiful, beautiful circularity of our redemption? Jesus comes and dies for our forgiveness and our cleansing. He wins for us the right to be cleansed and renewed. Then the Spirit comes and applies the cleansing and renewing and regenerating life in your life and your heart, giving us a new life and a new heart so that when he gives us that new heart, we then look up to the cross and we put our faith and trust in Jesus and say, that is the one we want to serve. And we look with wonder and worship and delight at what he has done for us. That is the circularity of redemption. I love this story. I love this story because of the simplicity of faith and the miracle of faith. I mean, faith is so simple, right? A child could understand it. Kids, how are you saved? According to the story, you look to Jesus. A child can understand that. Trust in Jesus. And yet, it takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to utterly and radically transform you from the core of your being for you to grasp it. It means the dumbest person in the world could get it. And the smartest person in the world could never comprehend it. Unless the miracle of God's Spirit pours forth in you new life, new birth. The Spirit, He's a gift. He's a gift.